And good evening. Welcome, Newark family, once again to our Wednesday night live Bible study. And we're so glad that you're able to join us on this Wednesday, October 7th, 2020 evening. I am going and getting started. And so if my co-host for tonight and the teacher of the Bible study, my dear wife, Rachel, would go ahead and come off of mute and turn on her camera. She can join me. If you've been following along this week, we have been working on, there she is. We've been working on a theme talking about descriptive passages of scripture versus prescriptive passages of scripture. In other words, where does the Bible simply record a story versus where does the Bible give us not only narratives, story passages, but other passages that are meant for our instructions. They're meant for us to follow what is carried in the narrative. So we're continuing that theme tonight with our live Bible study, and I'm going to turn it over to my wife. I'm going to disappear into the background, be watching and monitoring the chat feature. So go ahead and submit your questions. Since we have Rachel, the expert biblical scholar on tonight, tonight is the night to ask all of your burning questions related to anything you want, I'm sure. No, probably at least just the Bible story that we're discussing this evening. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to her, and I will see you all later in the broadcast. Well, good evening. We do know that we save all those deep theological questions for Pastor Arash, in case anyone was confused there. I'm going to make sure I get you in the right direction. Um, he always has a, an answer, no matter what. Um, so we're going to get in tonight. I have really enjoyed listening to the messages this week and and the the way that they were described with the prescriptive and the, the descriptive and I've I've thoroughly enjoyed every single lesson so far. So I'm going to not to be outdone by Pastor Rosh, who took care of talking to us about Jephthah's daughter. We're gonna jump into a story here that much of the story seems to be very significant, have a lot of meaning, a lot of a descriptive and prescriptive all throughout the story until we get to this one part. So we are looking at Abraham has been approached by God and then also the angels have been sent to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy the city. And we enter the story um, while the angels are speaking to Lot. They've already blinded the men of the city and they are urging Lot to get to get get out. Let's get you out of here. So we're going to jump into the story right here um, on Genesis chapter 19, verse 12. These two visitors say to Lot, who else do you have here? Do you have any sons-in-laws, um, any, any other sons, any other daughters or relatives in the city? Get them out of this place. So the angels made quite a big opportunity for Lot to get anyone he was related to out of the city. Get them out of this place because we are about to destroy it. The outcry against this place is so great before the Lord that he has sent us to destroy it. And then Lot leaves, he goes out, he speaks to, um, it says he spoke to his son-in-laws, some, um, some versions say his daughter's fiancés, they were going to marry his daughters. Um, he said, quit, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But the sons-in-laws, they just thought he was making fun, making a joke. Uh, this version says ridicule them, or he was tricking them. They didn't believe him. They kind of laughed him off. So in verse 15, at dawn, the angels hurried Lot along saying, Get going. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be destroyed when the city is judged. Says, You're the only ones here. Nobody else came. Nobody else listened. Get out. Sounds a lot like the story of, of Noah and his sons. Only a few were saved. They were the only ones there. And so um, Lot hesitates again in verse 16. It says, when Lot hesitated, the angels, the men actually grabbed his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters because the Lord had compassion on them. They led them away and placed them outside the city. Lot, his wife and daughters, would not leave the city. The angels had to drag them out of the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, run for your lives. Don't look behind you or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be destroyed. 
But Lot said to them, no, no, please. Your servant, if I found favor with you, show me one more kindness. You've shown me great kindness by sparing my life, but, but one more. I cannot escape into the mountains because this disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, this, this, there's a little town over here close enough to escape to. It's, it's just a little one. Let me go there. It's just a little place, isn't it? Then I'll survive. Very well, he replied. I will grant this request too and will not overthrow the town you mentioned. Run there quickly for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. This incident explains why the town was called Zoar because it was little. The sun had just risen over the land as Lot reached Zoar. Then the Lord rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was sent down from the sky by the Lord. So he overthrew those cities and all that region, including all the inhabitants of the cities and the vegetation that grew from the ground. So the whole valley is destroyed except this one little town. But Lot's wife looked back longingly and was turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked out toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of that region. As he did so, he saw the smoke rising up from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the region, God honored Abraham's request. He removed Lot from the midst of destruction when he destroyed the cities Lot had lived in. So at this point, uh, the whole valley, all the cities have been destroyed. Lot's wife has died. Um, here it says that she looked back. There's different commentaries, different discussion here on the fact that she didn't just look. She actually turned and was running back, trying to get back. And I, I can't imagine if I had family in a city, uh, my friends, people I loved in a city that was being destroyed and they wouldn't leave. And so Lot's wife longingly looked back, whether she ran back, whether she turned around, whatever happened, she died. It cost her her life. So then we see that Lot went up from Zoar with his two daughters and settled in the mountains because he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. So we saw Lot ask the angels, oh, wait, don't, don't make me go to the mountains. I'll die there. But yet, after he survives in this city, he still leaves because he's afraid, and he goes and lives in the mountains in the cave. Later, the older daughter said to the younger daughter, Our father is old, and there is no man anywhere nearby to have sexual relations with according to the way of the world, of, uh, according to the way of all the world. Come, let's make our father drunk with wine so we can have sexual relations with him and preserve our family line through our father. So that night they made their father drunk with wine, and the older daughter came and had sexual relations with her father. But he was not aware that she had sexual relations with him and then got up. So in the morning, the older daughter said to the younger, Since I had sexual relations with my father last night, let's make him drunk again tonight. Then you go and have sexual relations with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they made their father drunk that night as well. And the younger one came and had sexual relations with him. But he was not aware that she had had sexual relations with him and then got up. He was very drunk. In this way, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also gave birth to a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the ancestor of the Ammonites today. So we're talking about prescriptive and descriptive. This story, um, if you read the huge whole narrative, there are some, seems like some prescriptive things in it, but this part of the story with Lot and his daughters, it doesn't appear there's anything prescriptive in it um, from a positive perspective. We'll talk, come back and talk about prescriptive a little bit later, but there are many, many, many things that are, that are descriptive here. Of, of what's going on. It's a story, but why? Why Why do we have this story? Um, if someone tried to say, well, it's because the family line has to be preserved no matter what, you can do this. Well, no, there's lots of scriptures that speak against that. So why is this part of the story even in the Bible? What does it accomplish? So these are two questions. Why is the story in the Bible and what does it accomplish? So I thought we could have a little fun and have a few time for a few history bits with Desi. If he could turn his camera on, I see that he's muted. Um, 
hopefully he's listening. If he could come back online, I'd really like to hear what he has to say about this. So a few history bits with Desi. Go ahead, babe. You give me this part? I'm watching the comments, and as people have already said, well, this is not exactly a story that we cover in Sunday school with the kiddos. <laughs> no kidding. And so now she says, yes, babe, jump back on. Tell everybody, why is this even included in this narrative? Well, thank you for giving me the easy part. Let's go <laughs> ahead and do a little bit of put your thinking caps on. And around here, we've talked a lot about the idea of slow read and doing a slow read. And remember when you do a slow read, you need to ask yourself questions like, who are the characters? What's the setting? Who was this written for? Who was the author, etc." Now we know that this story takes place in the book of Genesis. We see this still within the first book of the Bible. We know that the book of Genesis, along with all of the Old Testament, was written specifically to the children of Israel. So you have to kind of mentally do a little bit of an exercise, but this story takes place during the time of Abraham. Jewish history says that the Pentateuch was at least largely comprised by Moses, and so you've got to think towards at least the time of the exile, or not exile, Exodus, and later. So this story that's taking place with Abraham and his nephew Lot is happening at least 400 years before the audience who's reading it. And in this story, we find almost like a footnote. And let me go back to, where is it? In verse 37, the older daughter gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He's the ancestor of the Moabites. And the younger daughter gave birth to a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the answer of the Ammonites today. When is today? Today is when this book was written. When does the story take place? At least, at least 400 years before it's written. So you kind of have to work backwards mentally with me a little bit. But what you see is this story is included because it tells the ancestry of two neighboring nations with Israel. It tells the ancestry of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, for those of you who remember your Old Testament, you should recognize these names because the Moabites and the Ammonites are going to show up over and over and over and over and over and over again in Israel's history. And they are constantly at war with Israel and they are constantly a place of strife. And we don't see good things come out of Ammon or Moab. And so these two nations that were close to Israel and were their enemies and were constantly at strife with them have part of their ancestry recorded in Genesis. Remember Genesis being written for the nation of Israel as kind of a reminder to the Israelites, hey, you know those people that you have to deal with all the time? They're, everything is sorted about them. Right back to the very beginning, the father of those nations, all the way back there, it's shameful and disgraceful how those nations even started. So at one level for the original audience, we see some hints in the scriptures as the author is telling them, think them being original audience as in the nation of Israel, that two of the nations they are constantly at strife with have a terrible, terrible beginning in something that was incredibly shameful and not appropriate. So that's one of the things that's going on. Why would this story even be included? But secondarily, and I think and hope this is where Rachel is going to go for the next little while, is that this story also gives us some examples of terrible, terrible behavior. Why do we have terrible behavior recorded in the scripture? Why isn't scripture just replete over and over with good stories and nice things that happen and things that should encourage you? Why isn't scripture full of, you know, strolls through the woods and fluffy bunnies and happy unicorns and rainbows and things like that? Why does scripture, especially the Old Testament, include so many broken, so many, quite frankly, sordid stories that we don't even want to share in our Sunday school classes with our kids. Because these stories are there to preserve not only history, but to teach us something. So keep this in mind as you work through the scriptures and you're thinking about what's prescriptive and what's descriptive. If it's descriptive, even though it's not written as instruction to you on a way you should behave, even the descriptive passages, such as this one, which is a terrible, 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 embarrassing story. Even these descriptive passages teach us something or some things. 
and we can draw principles out of them on what we should behave like or shouldn't behave like. We can draw principles out of it. And so when you come across these passages in the scripture and you're thinking, what on earth did I just read that? Why would that be included in there? That's a good time to pause and to genuinely think, okay, as the reader today, what am I supposed to learn from this? Why has God preserved this in his holy word? What is it I should be learning from this? And hopefully tonight, that's where Rachel's going to go with the rest of this conversation. And having said that, and thank you so much for giving me the tricky bits, I'm going to hide my video again. Okay. All right, here we go. Um, back into that. So if I don't get my prescriptive and descriptive confused, we're going to talk a little bit um, about the prescriptive part of this story. It's kind of prescriptive in the reverse. First, though, let's talk about Lot's daughters. They were in a terrifying situation. From what we know, they've grown up in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is their culture. This is their people. This is their world. They probably didn't travel much outside these cities. You know, back then, people traveled in caravans and they uh, they went places, but they didn't. They, they, a lot of people stayed very close to home. Travel wasn't easy. Their entire world had been destroyed in a matter of minutes. These angels have shown up. There's been a riot at their house. Their fathers offered them to these guys. In the previous story, they were already traumatized. I'm sure traumatized there. Then they just watched their mother die. They watched all their relatives in the area, their friends, and their community destroyed. There is no hope that maybe Bobby from down the street made it out of the cities. Everyone they know, all their friends, all their community is dead. There was no jumping on a plane and going to grandma's because they had another place to live. It would take them days to get anywhere. They've lost all of their possessions. They didn't want to leave the city. The angels had to grab them by their hands and drag them out. Do you know what that means? That means they didn't pack. If the angels are holding their hands, unless somebody grabbed a backpack real quick, they don't have their possessions. It, it appears that they don't know where, where Abraham and his family, which is their relatives, are. And now their father, after all this, has taken them into these mountains that he initially was fearful to go into. And I'm sure that fear transferred to his daughters. So their whole world has just been devastated. They don't have a world anymore. Their mom died. I mean, everything's gone. Everything they know is gone. So imagine if you... Uh, we are on the East Coast out here. So imagine you're lived on the East Coast your entire life. You've never had a car. You've never tried, traveled outside a 20-mile radius. And a nuclear bomb destroys everything as far as your eye can see. You weren't home. For some weird reason, you were in an elevator somewhere, and you're the you and your dad and a sibling. And somehow, miraculously, uh, you lived. You don't feel like it's a miracle because you're devastated. They didn't feel like it was a miracle. God was actually working a miracle in this situation to save their lives. But they were so devastated and traumatized, they weren't even aware. They couldn't see the miracle. The fact that the angels drugged them out didn't feel like a miracle. It felt like everybody they loved died. The whole world was destroyed. And they were left alone to suffer. So imagine a, a nuclear warhead has, has destroyed this whole area. And you have no phone. Your home was destroyed, everything in it, and it's only you, a sibling, and your dad. You watched your mom die, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that everyone you knew and you loved in the whole area is dead. You also don't know how far the damage is. It's just as far as the eye can see. So the whole valley, everything they can see, is gone. This situation would be impossible to process. It would be impossible for you to, and I to process. We, we would have trouble processing a bomb, even close by. But everything wiped out. Everybody. Oh, and on top of that, there is no indication that these girls have any kind of relationship with the God of Abraham. They've lived in a culture where some of the most vile and violent sin is celebrated and normalized. So these girls are devastated they don't know God. They've come from a culture that, that celebrated and normalizes violence and sin. And now 
they feel like they have to make a decision about their future. What kind of shape do you think these girls in? Do you think they are in the shape to make a wise, God-honoring decision? I don't think so. They do make a decision. And out of that decision births two of the most powerful enemies of their own family's descendants. It is huge family division. So their descendants are at war with Abraham's descendants, their own relatives. So what can we learn from this story? This story is describing to us that life-changing decisions made during times of fear, trauma, and extreme emotion can be devastating. This scripture is prescriptive. It's prescribing what not to do. And so we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. What not to do. It's prescribing all right. It's prescribing you the prescription of how to really make a bad decision. Uh, we know that Lot's daughters did not have correct information. Okay? They thought there were no men left in the entire area. Some translations, in some translations, it actually, they say there are no men left in the world. But we know that Abraham's entire community was close enough for them to see the smoke from the destruction of the valley. These girls had no clue. They didn't have good information because we know that Abraham had plenty of men. He had enough men in his entourage earlier in the story when Lot was kidnapped to go chase them down and beat the enemy and bring the kings back. Lot had a lot of men in his community and entourage, but the girls don't know he's even nearby. So they make that decision without good information. Lot's daughters also, we only have record that they communicated with themselves. They didn't have anybody speaking into their lives that understood their situation clearly. They didn't even talk to their dad, and maybe he was a mess. I'm sure he was a mess. I'm sure everybody was a mess, all three of them. And probably everybody in that little town of Zoar was a mess after seeing the entire valley wiped out. So there's nobody around that they feel that they can get good, wise counsel from. They only counsel with themselves in their trauma and in their confusion, and that leads to this decision. Lot's daughters were acting in fear. Fear that their family line was going to die out. That was a big deal in their culture. They assumed that they were in a desperate situation. They were in a traumatic situation, but the desperation that their family line was going to die out wasn't true either. There were other options. They just didn't have good information. Their decision was made on the heels of intense trauma and grief. Even a person that makes excellent decisions will make poor decisions on the heels of trauma and grief. This story, again, is a great example of how to make a bad decision. So if we have this prescription of how to make a bad decision, what do we do with this information? Okay, so now, yay, we know how not to make a bad decision. Some of you may be like, well, I knew that anyway. So what do I do with this information? Well, it, it should cause us to ask, okay, those questions. How do I make a good decision during times of fear, trauma, distress, and extreme emotion? Because we're all going to have those times. We're all going to experience times of fear, trauma, distress, and extreme emotion. So we can start by just doing the opposite of Lot's daughters. So that's why I said it's prescriptive backwards. Here's the prescription to make a bad decision. Do the opposite and you may make a good decision. So let's look at it backwards. Let's flip it. You and I, to make a good decision during fear, trauma, extreme emotion, distress, we're going to do, if we do the opposite of Lot's daughters, what do we do first? Well, they didn't have good information. So we want to go get good information. We need to find out the truth, even if it takes time. Find out the scope of the situation. Find out the truth. And many times when we're acting in fear, uh, distress, extreme emotion, we need a decision right now. Lot's daughters needed a decision right now, today. Most of the time, we don't need to make a life-altering decision right now. 
today. There may be times you're in an emergency room, you have an emergency situation, but guess what? There's doctors, there's people there that can speak to you about that situation. But take the time to make a decision, to get good information, to find out the truth and the scope of the situation. Don't make assumptions and think this decision has to be made right now. Slow down and take time to get good information. The next thing, they only talked to each other. We can have people in our lives. Find someone in your life that you trust who you can talk to and get perspective about your situation. So in fear, trauma, distress, extreme emotion, take a deep breath, get good information, and then already before the distress, go to a person you have chosen that gives good, wise counsel that you can talk to that can help you get perspective. Preferably, it's someone who's not too close to the situation or involved. So you may have a family member that you normally go to, or you may have someone that you normally go to, but they're heavily involved in this situation. So it's good to have more than one person that you know you can trust, that you can talk to. You need someone outside that situation. Number three, they made decisions out based on fear and desperation. So what are we going to do? Don't make your decision based on fear or desperation. See how hard that was? They did it. We're not going to do it. Don't make a decision based out of your fear and desperation. Get good information. Talk to someone and calm down. Let your fears calm. Find peace in the Lord. Do what you have to do to not make that decision based on fear and desperation. Then, if you've had experienced trauma or grief, give yourself time to process and begin to heal. Again, the key there is time. They didn't seem to take much time. They were worried he's getting old. We don't know how much time lapsed between them leaving Zoar and this decision, but not enough time. <laughs> so if you experience trauma or grief, give yourself time to process and begin to heal before you make life-altering decisions. I'm not saying that after trauma, you can't decide if you want a chicken sandwich or a beef burger. I'm saying for big life-altering decisions. For some people, this can take weeks, months, or even years. When a person loses a very close family member, many times it is recommended that they not make any big decisions for at least one year after that loss because our vision is clouded. Our emotions have taken over. We are grieving. We are not seeing the world from a different perspective. We are seeing the world through our grief. And I believe that is what Lot's daughters were doing here as well. Number five, which I've said through this whole thing, take time to calm down before you make a decision. So these are five things that all we have to do is the opposite of Lot's daughters. Job said, I want to jump over to Job. Job said, Job does a completely different thing here than Lot's daughters. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So another, this is another part in scripture where Job has been, he has been devastated and lost. He hasn't watched the whole valley burn, but all of his children have died. He's lost everything except his wife, pretty much, and the, the, the one servant that made it back. And he's lost it all, his reputation and everything. But yet, he makes a good decision. Why did Job make a good decision? Because Job teaches us that the best time to make a good decision for times of great distress is before we are in great distress. And... Job made that decision before he was in great distress. God knew that he could allow Job to be tested because Job had already made the decision to trust God no matter what happened in his life. He had already chosen God. Lot's daughters, I don't even know if they had this choice. We don't know how they were raised. We don't have any account of Lot teaching his daughters the ways of Abraham that he had learned, the ways of, of following after this God. And so we don't know that, but we can also go to Job and know that the best time to make a good decision for times of great distress is before we are in distress. If you haven't had time in your life, if you haven't already decided like Job, that no matter what happens to me, I will live for God. I will choose God. I will trust him. No matter, even if he slays me, even if he kills me, I will trust him. Now is the time to make up your mind. Don't wait. 
and said, well, I'll see how I feel about that later. No, now is the time to make up your mind that you will hold on to God. You will trust God no matter what the future holds, even if God decides you will die. The Apostle Paul is another great example of someone that decided to trust God. He trusted God knowing that he would suffer, but he chose to follow and trust God before he ever experienced the suffering. He didn't wait till he was in the middle of being stoned to be like, oh, wait a minute, um, to trust God or not to trust God. No, he had already made that. There was no decision to make. It had already been made. So I see that we're at 731. So I'm going to, hopefully, Desi will join us back here for any questions we have. Hello. I see Newark family. In case you missed what we posted in the chat feature, it is question time now. So please go ahead and begin to submit your questions so that way we have more dialogue we can cover. And we can go ahead and begin to discuss those. I can give you one question because that's all that's come in so far, but it's a great place to start. This whole week, we've been talking about the idea of prescriptive versus descriptive passages. So would you mind just helping our listeners tonight as they're all tuned in by just giving a high level overview? How can we even tell the difference? How do we know when we're reading scripture, whether we are reading a prescriptive passage or a descriptive passage? What are some tools we can use, some helps in order to figure that out. Well, using this passage as an example, if you were struggling to know that if a nuclear warhead hit the East Coast and it was only you and your sibling and your father left on the planet and you thought it was just y'all, and so the Bible says we should go procreate with our father, um, if you're struggling with that, like Lot's daughters did. Well, we should do what Lot's daughters did. Well, no. Um, you, there's lots of other scriptures you can go read that we are given lots of instruction. And so I would, it's really difficult to just pull one story out of the Bible. I think context is huge uh, for what you're reading. And also, I encourage you to read the Bible. Uh, because if you read the whole Bible, many of those things become very apparent. Many stories, many prescriptive and descriptive, or that's actually answered whether it's prescriptive or not through other parts of Scripture. So I would I would add to that because this is a good question. The prescriptive passages are typically much easier to tell. We see many commands throughout the Bible. Not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. When you come across a command and it says, don't lie, that's pretty straightforward. Jesus is speaking to the crowds and he tells them, if you don't forgive others, then my father in heaven won't forgive you. Right. That's really straightforward. It doesn't take a lot of discernment to figure out that this is a command. It's an instruction. It's something that is prescriptive. It's something that is telling us the way that we should behave. So typically, the prescriptive passages are a lot easier to determine. And as you read scripture, and the more you read the Bible, and the more that you recognize the meta narrative, the overarching story that goes from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, you begin to see these themes that pop up over and over and continue to reoccur. And as you recognize these themes, you will then be able to look at other stories and go, huh, that doesn't line up with fill in the blank in scripture. Or, well, that contradicts what Jesus said in this place. Or, well, that doesn't line up and is not consistent with the character of God that I see in fill in the blank story. And so that's a good way to begin to weed things out. Now let's flip it over on the other side. Let's say you've got a narrative passage, because that's really where we tend to have more trouble with this. And the narrative passage, you're reading it and you're not quite sure, is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it something I should emulate? A great one to start with is what we started the week on, on Saturday night with Sister Debbie's broadcast. And if you haven't seen that, I encourage you to go back and watch that. And she used the story of Gideon and how he fleeced God before he went into battle. Mm -hmm. Now, somewhere along the way in your Christian journey, you may have even come across people or talked about fleecing God, because we see this example from Gideon. However, when you do a slow read of the story, as Sister Debbie walked us through, it's not put in a positive light. 
Gideon is not commended for fleecing God. We don't see this pattern emerge over and over in Scripture. We see this story one time, and it seems very contrary to what God is telling Gideon to do. And God has said, I will be with you, and Gideon needs to check multiple times. And then even after checking multiple times, he still doesn't believe it and has to sneak into the enemy camp and hear them talk about what's going on before he'll begin to believe what God's doing. So when you take the whole story all together and you step back, you go, hmm, you know what? This fleecing thing that Gideon did really wasn't that good. And so look at the way that the story is presented. Is the story presented in a positive light? And the case tonight, and these are some of the more extreme examples, what Arash did, you know, talking about child sacrifice. And now Rachel talking about this incestuous relationship between these daughters and their father after they think the whole world has come to an end and they're in some post-apocalyptic climate. You read these stories and you think, oh, dear Lord, this is terrible. Go read the book of Judges and watch the downward spiral that you see over and over. Get to the end of the book of Judges and read the last two chapters. And it's some of the most heinous, horrible, violent crimes in all of the Bible. And again, you read these passages and you think, good Lord, why, Jesus, why, why, God, is this even in the scriptures? Why would this story be preserved? And when you come across these stories that seem incredibly cruel or incredibly violent or incredibly wrong, it's a time to pause and realize, okay, this is obviously not prescriptive in the sense that I should be emulating this behavior, but you should be asking yourself, why is this here? There are no stories in the biblical narrative that are there by accident. There are no stories in the biblical narrative that are there without a specific purpose. And so if you don't recognize what the purpose is, it's time to pause and to do a slow read and think about why was this story included? And don't be afraid to pray and ask God to reveal it to you. Jesus made it clear to his disciples that once he lived, he would send the Holy Spirit to them, and the Holy Spirit would lead and guide them into all truth. So pray and ask your Heavenly Father to have the Holy Spirit continue to lead and guide you into truth. And when you read the scriptures, if you're unsure whether it is prescriptive or descriptive, one of the first things you can do is just ask yourself, is this story put in a positive light? That'll probably answer the question. If you're still not sure, then spend time in prayer and ask God to help you understand the passage. Talk to an elder in your life, someone who knows more about the scripture than you. Seek out counsel. Find information. There are many resources out there that you can tap. And then when you come across a negative passage in scripture and you're thinking, why was this even included? Recognize it's there for a reason. And almost all of the time, the reason it's there is to be a warning to you this is behavior that you should not emulate. Right. I would also recommend, again, I think it's the Bible Project. Is that the website that we've been recommending? Um, but there it gives you that overview. Overviews. Because when you have an overview of the chapter or the, the book that you're reading, uh, it some of those things naturally fall into place because they've given an overview of what's happening through that book of the Bible. And then you can say, oh, this is what they were doing. This is the cycle they had fallen into or what's happening here. So many times the Bible project can give really good clarity. Let's go to another question now. This is good advice. Another question came in that said, how can we help others when they have taken a descriptive passage and they've tried to make it prescriptive? How can we offer advice in a loving and yet corrective way? So you, you talk to someone, you find and they're justifying some behavior that they're doing or they're about to do, because after all, we see fill in the blank in the scriptures. What would you do with that? Um, I would do it very carefully. <laughs> First of all, have they actually asked for your opinion? Um, many times, and we've all probably fallen into this trap at times with something, but with scripture, people will use scripture to justify their actions. And if someone isn't truly seeking to understand the scripture and they're just using scripture to justify their action, the only thing you're going to do is get into a fight. Our goal is not to correct someone that doesn't want, that isn't seeking truth. Um, so if it's a friend or a family member, I think the first thing is to, is to ask enough questions to figure out what their motive is. Mm -hmm. 
You also want to know if maybe a mentor or a pastor, someone in their life taught them this information. Because again, you want to be very careful how you approach that. Because if it's a family grandma who died, you know, that was the best Christian they ever knew, taught them this, or their pastor, and here you are saying, uh, grandma's wrong. Pastor's wrong. Probably not going to get very far. Don't want to come from that angle. You want the only thing you can do is say is maybe say, well, let's study scripture together and right. see let's what the see scripture what has to say. Let's let's study some more scripture, maybe some other areas in the Bible, and see if we can find um, other scriptures that support this. And you want to be very careful if you have someone that's super hungry, they're sincere, they are wanting to learn the scripture, and they are misinformed. Then the then the road is opened for you to be honest with kindness. But you have to come at it from let's look at what scripture says, not, oh, well, you're wrong and I know this. Our job is to help study the scripture, share the scripture, share truth. Um, but you cannot share truth with someone that isn't doesn't want any. You can't right. make somebody eat something they don't want. All you're going to do is get in a fight. Right. So we have to use caution and wisdom and pray for the spirit's guidance in those situations. Let me give you another question very similar to that. It says, how can we help others to better understand that not everything in the Bible is prescriptive? So as you're dealing with others, as you're teaching and talking with others about the scripture, what advice would you give to help people do better at helping others to understand that not everything in the Bible is meant to be prescriptive? Again, I would say if you really have someone that, that you're close enough to them that you want, people aren't going to walk up to you on the street and say, I'm pretty sure this thing in the Bible is prescriptive. So to even get into that conversation, most of the time you have to have some kind of relationship with them. And so I would encourage you, ask them, hey, you want to do some Bible study? Get them in the Bible study. Start studying the Bible together. You know, uh, whether you're on Zoom or after this pandemic, you know, grab coffee, make it a, a routine, do something where you can study the Bible together and let scripture reveal itself. Be spirit led and let scripture reveal itself. Uh, you're not going to answer those questions at the water cooler at work. You're not going to answer those questions in a phone call one time. Um, relationship is built and study of the scripture, developing a love for what the scripture is. The first place you want to start is that scripture's truth. And that we love scripture. And if you get there, then you can, then scripture speaks for itself as most of the time. There are some things where people have been taught and they have a hard time seeing it. But again, the scripture, the spirit does reveal as we study yeah. scripture. Good. I see that Regina Beardsley submitted. It's not a question, but she had a good thought. And I'd like to share that if you, for those of you watching, if you didn't see it in the chat comments, a great question to ask yourself just as you work your way through scripture. It doesn't matter if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Ask yourself the question, what can I learn from this? This is especially true when you're in a narrative or what you may call a story passage. You're seeing this description of these events that have unfolded with these characters that are in the scriptures. And ask yourself, what can I learn from this? Maybe it's positive behavior that you should emulate. Or in the case of the scripture passage we looked at tonight, it's terrible behavior, and it should make you pause and think, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this? How can I not fall into the same trap and make these kinds of mistakes? So thank you, Regina. That's excellent advice for anybody as they read the scriptures. I would also encourage all of you watching, if you have any other questions or comments, you're welcome to submit them. Let's move to a different question, and it asks... How do we know when we are healed enough? It seems like some things don't heal because you talked about when there's been a traumatic experience or there's something gravely wrong, if at all possible. It's best not to make major decisions, certainly life-altering decisions in that time of pain, grief, trauma, etc. So how can we begin to tell when we are moving past that scenario, when we are well, as the person who submitted the question said, healed enough, if that's even the right way to put it. Well, if you're not sure, and, and even if you think you are sure, my number one recommendation other after prayer would be to go to someone that you trust that is outside the situation. Mm -hmm. You can talk to about the traumatic experience and then talk about the decision you would like to make. 
and say, am I seeing clearly? Is this traumatic decision, is this traumatic experience, does this sound like a decision that it's being controlled by that? Am I reacting to this experience or is this a wise decision? Um, nothing, nothing can take the place of wise counsel. Mm-hmm. And many times we feel like people may think we're stupid or people don't have time for us, or I'm the only person in the world that's ever been through this kind of traumatic experience. And you are not. It's too small. Yeah. You're not the only person that's been through that traumatic experience. There are many people probably surprise us all if we knew how many people have been through traumatic experiences or at least very similar experiences. Very similar experiences. And so finding having someone that you trust that you can talk to, even if you can't, if you're not at a place where you share all your specific details, but you can give them an idea of the situation and say, this is the decision I need to make. Does this sound wise? Um, is this is this a sound decision? I mean, I try to get wise counsel. Desi and I both, you know, with any big decision in life, we get wise counsel. We have mentors, people in our lives we go to. Um, even when we feel super healthy and awesome, <laughs> you know, we're pretty sure we've heard from God 100%. We still try to seek out wise counsel because that's scriptural. Right. Um, we should seek wise counsel for major, major decisions. Um a big part of seeking counsel is getting perspective. Right. Especially when we're in a time of hurt or recovering from a time of hurt. It's it's hard to look at the situation clearly. And the act of seeking counsel, as my wife said, from someone who's outside the situation gives us perspective that we lack. And the more perspective that we can get, and granted, as I say this, I'm assuming that you're getting biblical counsel. You're getting, as she said, wise counsel people who you respect and esteem who have an established and mature walk with God, as you talk with them, hopefully they're helping to provide you with perspective. This goes back to one of the principles she mentioned earlier tonight that we learned the lesson from these daughters who did not seek counsel from anybody else. If at all possible, especially after a time of trauma or grief, even as you feel your healing, don't make decisions by yourself. Right. Don't fall into the trap of getting stuck in your own head. Right. And I, I would I would add to that. I have a, a friend that's a counselor and many times people don't want to get counsel from counselors or talk to a, a counselor because they think that um, that person is just going to, you know, unpack their stuff and try to fix them. Many times a counselor, what they do is help you learn what help you develop perspective in dealing with that situation. So that you can, you know, it gives you an awareness of when this happens, I respond this way because of this. Now I have, I have that perspective. And so now I can relook at it again. And I know the questions to ask myself to get the correct perspective. And sometimes it takes, it can take years to do, to do that. Sometimes it happens, you know, rather quickly. But even when you do that, even after you've had counseling, you've learned to do that, it can, it's still wise to have someone to just bounce things off of. Um, you know, not, do I buy a red car or a blue car? Um, you know, you can make those decisions. But, and, you know, you may buy a color car because the person that you lost loved that color. Um, but that's probably not going to be a life-altering decision. So speaking of this counsel and trying to seek guidance, I see another question that came in that said, when we choose our person or persons that we want to trust to help us get answers before we make these major decisions, what should we consider in those persons we choose? As we're looking for godly, wise counsel, what are the characteristics we should be looking for in these people? Well, you would want to look for someone that you know makes wise decisions been able to watch their life or see so someone that you see with a history of making wise decisions. they have a history of not mean they're perfect but they have a history of making wise well i probably shouldn't talk to the person who's got a train wreck of personal relationships about how i should handle my own relationships right probably not unless they've recovered and are doing very well and then they have a boatload of experience of what not to do uh, you know, Lot's daughters, 20 years later, you know, maybe they've, they've recovered, but you find somebody that has a history of making wise decisions. You find somebody that makes biblically based decisions. 
find someone that can can hold a confidence that you know when they know your trauma they're no longer your friend they're not no longer your friend or they have to go tell somebody else you know i won't tell anybody i'll just tell three other people and tell them not to tell anybody and we're not talking about crime here we're not talking about someone has done something and they need to go to jail we're not talking about reporting we're talking about helping you with wise counsel um, and I will say from our own experience, uh, Desi and I have had different people at during different seasons of our lives, during different times in our lives, God has just opened the door for different people. Now, there are some people that have all through our life have been mentors. And then there are other people that have come for a season and we've gone to them and they've helped us with the situation and then they're, they're gone. They're not there anymore. They're not available or it's just, you know, it's, it's a different time in our lives. And so there are people that may go walk for years and years with you through your life. And there are other people that may just be in your life for a season. But I, you can never, you can never under, you know, you can never overvalue being led of the Spirit. But the Bible gives us good counsel as well about looking for somebody that makes wise decisions. Someone that is Spirit-led. Someone that can keep a confidence. The Bible talks about you're not a gossiper. Mm -hmm. um, someone that isn't going to think less of you because of the trauma in your life. Right. Someone that can still be your friend or all mentors aren't our best buddies either, but someone that isn't going to abandon you and not be able to process your information. You can't look you in the eye anymore. So there are some things. And if you don't know how to do that, you're like, oh, I don't know anybody. I, I'm new or I just moved to the area. Um, you can ask around who's a really wise confidant, a really wise, someone you would go to for advice. Ask a few people, um, you know, that are seem to have, you may not know one, but they seem to be making good decisions. Ask them who they talk to. Yeah. Many times it's a pastor, it's an elder in the church, it's a, you know, somebody. That, could, that Many times that's one of the people that um, you can feel safe talking to. Good suggestions. Let's turn to another question that was submitted. Despite choosing to trust God ahead of time, it's hard to tell how you will act in a situation that you've never been in before. So how can we ensure that we will stick to our decisions when these hard times arrive? So you talked about the example from Job and how he decided before he ever got into the difficult situation, how he would respond. It sounds great. Maybe not so easy to do. So how can we ensure that we stick to these good decisions before we arrive in the difficult circumstance? Well, first of all, I would like to reassure you that you will mess up at times. <laughs> That's going to happen. You will fail. Um, but Job even questioned, God, what is going on here? He even questioned some. He did not lose his trust in God. He didn't curse God. He didn't turn from God. He didn't turn his back on God. But he had questions. And there are some situations we don't know how we are going to react and how we are going to respond. But we can make certain decisions that we don't, we, we won't waver on if we do some of these things. If yeah. we, if we are in a relationship with God and we have, are constantly continually feeding ourselves the word of God and we are living a life of style of prayer and we are doing certain things that is continually feeding our relationship with God when those hard times come and we've decided I'm gonna live for God no matter what you may have some other decisions you know well if so-and-so shows up and does this I'm gonna say this this and this or if my child was was murdered I would go to the prison and I would forgive that person publicly you know we have a lot of things we think we're going to do that we don't do. We have a lot of things we think we're negatively would do in a situation. And that situation happens and we're like, wow, I didn't, I didn't respond as bad I as I thought I, I would. I didn't mess that one up as bad as I, I thought I would. Too bad. But there are some core things. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they stood there on that line and they had not decided that God could rescue them in the moment. They had been in exile. They had a lot of stuff happen to them and they made a decision before they ever went into exile. We will serve this God. And they did. Did they do everything right? Did they mess up? I'm sure. But there are some decisions you sink your teeth into and you don't 
let go of. You hold on to. And you can, I believe, you can make the decision. Because we speak to ourselves. And we heard that sermon by, um, during our conference week, talking to yourself. Mm-hmm. During times of grief, trauma, hardships, what are you going to speak to yourself? You can only speak to yourself at those times what you already have. Do you have the word? Do you have prayer? Can you stand? Do you have scripture? Do you have wise counsel that can speak to you? And can you speak those things to yourself? And if you've only filled yourself up with other stuff, but the whole time you're saying, well, I've made the decision, I'm going to live for God, but you haven't read his word and you haven't spent time in prayer and you haven't developed a relationship with him, there's a pretty good chance you're going to break your word to yourself. That's a good point. That's a good point. We're coming to the top of the hour, and I think... I think we have one question left. See if you can fit this one in real quick. How is the role of the Holy Spirit involved in helping us as we decipher scriptures? I have heard multiple people that have received the gift of the Holy Spirit talk about, I received the Holy Spirit very young, so, but I've heard them talk about how they had read the scriptures for years. They had studied the scriptures and they thought they understood per- certain parts and other parts when they read it, it was kind of like they felt like they were just kind of beating their head against the wall. They didn't understand it. When they received the Holy Spirit and they read their Bible later, after they couldn't believe so much made sense, It the understanding that was there. So I can't personally describe to you how that happens. But I do know even in my own personal life, I have been reading Scripture and I've said, Lord, I, what are you trying to say here? What's going on in this Scripture? And... I, I understood. It made sense to me afterwards. And yeah. I have also had the Holy Spirit speak to me things that were applicable to a situation I'm in. I've read that part of the Bible before, and it's like, great, yeah, that's a good story. But there's another time I'm reading through that story, and God pulls something out that is directly applicable to my situation or something He wants me to change in my life. So I would say a huge part of the Holy Spirit speaking to us mm-hmm. and helping us with Scripture is us taking the time to do a slow read and listen. And there you go. That's where I was going to go with that. I likewise have had times in reading scripture where I did not understand something. And one of the easiest things you can do, one of the best things you can do is simply to pause and to pray and to talk to God and ask him to reveal to you a better understanding of that scripture. And the other thing my wife just said is we close out and you've heard this many, many times and we're going to keep, we're going to keep banging on this drum probably forever, but you, you've got to do a slow read. She talked about reading scripture and allowing the spirit to speak to you as you read scripture. If you only read scripture for five minutes a day and it's a checkbox activity and you're trying to go as fast as you can and just get this done so you can fulfill your obligation, it's like wanting advice and counsel from an elder or a counselor And so you make an appointment and you show up and you're only there for five minutes and you talk the whole time and then get up and walk out the door before they can respond. You have to allow time for the spirit to speak to you. So as you read scripture and as you make a deliberate effort to read slowly and pause, you allow time for the spirit to speak to you. Can you hear the voice of God when you read his scriptures? Do you allow time in your schedule for God to speak to you? and to teach you as you read his word. That's a big part of it. I I know we're out of time, but I have one little more thing I'd like to say. Um, Uh I want to share, my my mother's grandmother was one of the only spirit-filled believers in her town uh, during the Depression at a time when when there were not, there was no one to speak to her. We're very blessed in our congregation, in our church, to have, have lots of different theologians and people that study the Bible and people that ask questions. But she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She was ostracized from town because of that. It was not accepted well in their town. And my mother said she remembers her mother would tell her that um, my, my grandmother would remember when her mother would read her Bible and not understand something that she would kneel on the floor and lay her face in the Bible and pray. Speak in tongues, she would pray, and she would wait. And then she would read it again. And my grandmother said sometimes she did that for an hour or two until she felt she had an understanding of what the scripture meant because she had no one to go to. 
And so I say that, not that you need to lay your face in the Bible. That's not, that's not an instruction. This is how you hear. Yeah. But she was willing to get the principle. She didn't have any other options, but for the spirit to show her. And she did. And that was her method. And she would wait and she would listen and she would read until the spirit spoke. And it convicts me because I'm pretty sure 30 to 45 minutes later or even less, I'd be like, okay, God, well, maybe we'll catch it next time and go on with my life. But waiting and listening is a huge part of that. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining our broadcast and our live Bible study once again. If you are a first-time viewer, we welcome you to the broadcast, and we're so thankful that you decided to join us. For those of you who are used to this, we encourage you to continue to participate. We broadcast six days a week, Tuesday through Sunday. Monday is our Sabbath day for the church staff. We take that day off. But Tuesday through Sunday, you can find us on YouTube, you can find us on Facebook, or you can visit us at our church website at newarkupc.info. We broadcast nightly at 7 p.m. Tomorrow night will be another broadcast as we continue in this series on descriptive versus prescriptive passages in the Bible, and we encourage you to join us then. So until then, thank you for tuning in. God bless you all, and have a good night. Good night. Goodbye.